It's the confluence where the news comes together on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. Last week, Governor Josh Shapiro held a press conference saying he will sign the budget when Senate Republicans send it to his desk. But GOP members are angered, saying Shapiro reneged on a school voucher program that he said he would commit to. So how close are we to actually having a budget deal, or should I say a signed budget? Stephen Caruso is Spotlight PA's Capitol Reporter. Welcome back to the show, Stephen. Thanks for having me, Kevin. All right, let's get into some legislative technicalities of this. What are the requirements for a past budget to get to the governor's desk? So there's the standard requirements, which is a bill passes the Senate and passes the House, whatever order, it gets a majority vote. But then there's this one really tiny requirement that's usually just uh, afterthought, which is that the presiding officer of both chambers has to sign the bill. This isn't a sign in the law thing. It's literally just this like, yeah, we this is the bill we passed. This is the text we passed. Sign it, sign it. Presiding officer, that's a speaker in the House, the lieutenant governor in the Senate. And then it goes to the governor's desk where he makes the official decision of does it become law or does it get vetoed? And what we've seen right now is that the Senate is saying, after everything that's happened, which I'm sure we're going to get into, they might not actually sign that bill or they won't be coming to session, be able to sign the bill. So we're kind of at a logjam over this tiny little technicality that normally is not a big deal. And, and Stephen, to clarify, this happens, does it not, with every piece of legislation it gets passed by each chamber, but the uh, the majority, the uh, ruling officer in each uh, chamber signs it to send it on to the desk of the governor, correct? Yes, yes. This is, like I said, this happens on every bill that becomes law. It just has to get this one little sign-off from the presiding officer of each chamber after it's been passed in the final form. And that is normally just something that happens as a due course, uh, a, a due course of business. And, you know, there is one time that we can find where I've been able to find where a bill wasn't signed. It happened in the 90s, uh, 1992, to be precise, on an environmental bill, uh, where a bill was passed in a final form. Uh, it, it was signed in the House, it went to the Senate, and they just like, it just kind of got lost in a shuffle of like, some very crazy politics was going on. So like, there, there was a lot of, uh, I think there's a party flip in the Senate. So there's a lot of weird stuff happening in the Senate at the time. But like, you know, most of the time, hundreds of times, thousands of times, both bills just get signed to go to the governor, and he's the one making that decision. Okay. And the Republican leadership is saying, we're not going to sign this budget bill, even though we helped pass it, and the House passed it, because they say that Shapiro reneged on a, an agreement. What was that briefly? So what the agreement was is that Governor Shapiro, basically Senate Republicans say they had a deal with Governor Shapiro to include in the budget school vouchers, $100 million for a public money so that kids in the bottom 15% of districts uh, by test scores could go to a private school of their choice. It would pay for their tuition. You know, it, it would be a set amount of money. Um, and Shapiro has said he is open to school vouchers or school choice, uh, you know, like alternatives to public schooling. Um, but Shapiro, after this bill passed the Senate with only, basically just one, only one Democrat supported it, it went to the House. And I think there's a general understanding in the Capitol that like, 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 or people thought in the Capitol, I can tell you all my sources at the time were basically like, okay, this is what we expected. Shapiro is going to cut you up the Senate. It's going to go to the House. He's going to find a way to get it through. But it got to the House and House Democrats who control the lower chamber weren't happy. I mean, they are uh, they are 
strong allies of public uh, education. Obviously, teachers unions are a big backer of them and they oppose vouchers. I should add that there's a lot of money behind school choice as well. But like and but House Democrats just dug in their heels after about a week of kind of being iffy and said, we're not voting on this. And so Shapiro agreed to veto that $100 million for school vouchers in order to get the House to pass the bill, which otherwise does include a couple of Democratic priorities, but it also does not go as far as some Democrats would want on, say, spending money on public education. All right. So that's kind of where we're at now. All right. So Shapiro says he made no promises, and he said that he said publicly in the press conference that he wanted the uh, Senate Republicans to negotiate with the House Democrats and— we don't know who promised what officially because some of this was done behind closed doors, right? Exactly. All behind closed doors. There's going to be multiple sides to this. I think two things will be true at once. Um, I think it'd be true that Senate Republicans thought they had a deal earnestly. I think it'd be true that Josh Spiro need a little bit more to cut a deal. All right. Now, the overall budget process involves the approval of code bills. Uh, they have not been acted upon. Would you briefly explain what those are? Um, they're basically these bills that normally pass with the budget that amend state law around taxing spending that uh, traditionally have passed with the budget to basically say, hey, the state can spend money this year. And it also will lay out specific programs. Um, they're affectionately known as WAMs in Harrisburg. These are usually like, you know, maybe a specific program that a, a specific important lawmaker wants uh, that will like say, you know, actually uh, something that your listeners might be familiar with. Uh, a code bill is how Pittsburgh got its scooters, the electric scooters that now the pilot program ended, so they can't use it anymore. Uh, that was passed in a code bill, uh, I think, in 2021. So, like, code bills just become this dumping ground for lots of small policy tweaks. Okay. Uh, do these code bills, or some of them, have to be passed with the budget? So it actually going to depend on who you talk to. The state treasurer says yes. Uh, Stacey Garrity's office told me uh, that yes, like they, they will return checks or you know requests to spend money if they think the proper authority isn't there. Republicans uh, in the General Assembly have said the same thing, that uh, state programs like the whole home repair program, uh, $50 million within this budget was put to that. Uh, but they're saying that basically because of a technicality, that money can't be spent without a new code. Democrats and the administration, though, Shapiro's administration, are saying they actually have very broad spending authority about the code bills. But that's something that I'm waiting to see what happens. And these code bills have not been passed? No, they have not. All right. Uh, do we have a sense of how long this impasse can go before the state entities start feeling the pinch of not getting state appropriations? Uh, months, probably two, three months by fall. All right. Now, Senate Republicans on their website, on the Senate's website, says they're in recess to September 18th. Are we going to be without a budget until at least then? Have they said anything about a potential earlier return to Harrisburg? Haven't heard anything yet, but everything can change. I mean, they just have to return to Senate to sign the bill. Like I said, it's a nothing small maneuver. So, you know, that could happen really quick. But other than that, I haven't heard anything crazy. House Democrats said they want to reset on negotiations. It was a pretty stressful extra couple of weeks in Harrisburg. So we're just kind of waiting and seeing what happens. And very briefly, does the whole Senate have to return or just Senate leadership to sign the budget bill? It could effectively be one Democrat, one Republican, and lieutenant governor. So, nope, you don't need everyone. Stephen Crusoe is Spotlight PA's Capital Reporter. Stephen, as always, thanks so much for your reporting and for joining us. Thanks for having me.
It's the Confluence on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. This spring, the Penguins missed the NHL playoffs for the first time in 17 years. So ownership fired President of Hockey Operations Brian Burke, General Manager Ron Hextall, and Assistant GM Chris Pryor. Kyle Dubas has had to make a lot of decisions since being hired as the Pens' new president of hockey operations June 1st, from preparing for the amateur draft to deciding which free agents to try to hold on to and whom to pursue from other teams. So how has Dubas done? We turn to Rob Rossi, senior writer for The Athletic, who covers the Penguins. Welcome back to the show, Rob. Thanks for having me as always, Kevin. Hope you're well. Rob, and you as well. To this point, as Dubas's biggest decision, was it to resign one of his own goalie, Tristan Jarry? Absolutely. That was always going to be the biggest decision. It's the most important position in the sport. He had to decide if Jari, who he inherited, was the guy going forward, and he had to do it knowing that goaltending was probably the one issue he never really nailed down in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Is he betting on Jari, in a sense? Is it a gamble at all, considering considering Jari's injury history and, shall we say, shakiness in the playoffs? It's absolutely a gamble. I'm not sure there was another bet to place, though. It was not a fertile free agent market. Jari had a lot of leverage. He was the top free agent goalie on the market. Um, One good thing is Dubas went to Edmonton where Jari lives, had a day of conversation with him. It was after that where both sides came to the conclusion that sort of keeping this marriage going would be the best idea. One thing to keep in mind, Kevin, Jari's 28 years old. Goalies, including Marc-Andre Fleury, when he was with the Penguins, don't usually hit their prime until their 30s, unlike most position players that do it about three to four years earlier. All right. Did the length and the total value of the contract surprise you, though? It seemed to surprise some people, at least among Penguin fans. Based off what I was hearing during the negotiations from sources uh, from both the team and around the league, it surprised me. But I've since been told their options were basically a shorter term deal at higher cap hit, somewhere around six million, or this deal at a lower cap hit, sub five, five million. And when you're the Penguins and there's been a flat cap the last few years, Every penny counts. Also keep in mind, the cap is expected to go up by at least $4 million next season and maybe increase by twice that the season after. All right. So uh, the deal's about five years, $27 million. Uh, who's going to be uh, Jari's uh, backup uh, in goal? Uh, last year it was uh, Casey DeSmith. Well, there's going to be a competition. Uh, the Penguins signed a uh, goaltender in Nijelkovic, whose name I probably will misspell every time I do it. Um, even though he's from Ohio, which with a name like Nijelkovic, I wasn't expecting, but he had a really good start to his career um, as a younger goalie than to Smith, and I think is the guy they want to win the backup job. But one thing the Penguins have done this year is with Nijelkovic and to Smith. Um, they have added depth to their goaltending ranks that they lacked in previous seasons. And in the case of injury, which, hey, it's the Penguins, kind of happens a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, They're they're insured better this year. Now, you said that Dubas's maybe most important decision was the the re-signing of Tristan Jari. But most his most extensive work might have been to rebuild the third and fourth lines, the forwards, the bottom six, as they're called. What was needed there? 
new players. I mean, frankly, they were just insufficient uh, in terms of talent at the bottom. Six. Now, I should warn Penguin fans that are listening. This isn't going to be a bottom six that does a lot of scoring, or at least doesn't project to do a lot of scoring. But they now have added a lot of veteran players who know how to play the way the Penguins want uh, with an attacking mindset, with speed and puck possession. This should no longer be a bottom six. And when you put it on the ice, uh, fans are just going to go, uh-oh. Um, this, this bottom six, if healthy, should have the puck a lot more than it did last season, which will help the defending uh, of the Penguins. You know, as they say in hockey, Kevin, the best defense is going on offense. Um, so I, I have high hopes for this bottom six to be much better than last season. And the other thing that um, Kyle Dubas has done sort of stealthily here is some of the guys we had to see call up at the forward position and because of injuries last year who weren't really ready to play in the NHL, he's gone and signed a lot of depth players even for the Wilkes-Barre level at the AHL. So if you look at it simply, there's 12 forwards that play, right? Then you have like 13 through 19 in the organization. Those guys are now more competent players. Mm -hmm. uh, was his biggest ap acquisition up front actually a trade with the Vegas Golden Knights? Tell us a, just a little bit about Riley Smith, what he brings. Riley Smith is a guy that's rarely out of the lineup because of injury. He's a great shot, plays with speed, should be an ideal fit for that second line. Okay. On the blue line, the Pens signed a big, and I mean big defenseman, Ryan Graves, but said goodbye to Brian Dumoulin. How might Graves help? Well, if you remember what Brian Dumoulin was when he was younger and uh, ha had sort of better skating ability, uh, Ryan Graves is that guy. So they basically traded the older Brian Dumoulin for the younger version of Dumoulin. All right, Rob. Is there another shoe, or should I say a skate to drop? What would the Penguins have to do to acquire Eric Carlson from San Jose? Uh, get very creative. They're going to need to involve at least a third team in this because they have to move some pieces to clear cal salary cap space. But I've been told that Carlson's already spoken to the Penguins, um, that he is interested in playing for the Penguins. And I can tell you from talking to my sources in the organization Dubas is obsessed with this. He believes Carlson is the difference between them getting back to the playoffs and getting back to the playoffs and maybe contending for a Stanley Cup. I would expect him to exhaust every option to try to complete this deal. Uh, should we, though? I mean, 100-point scorer, but not exactly a bang the guys out in front of his own net and clear those other opponents away. Kevin, it's the Penguins. Scoring is in their DNA, you know? If you win the game 9-8, to eight, you still win the game. <laughs> okay. And, Rob, very uh, quickly, they didn't get younger. They Did they get any faster, though? They did get faster. And one thing about getting younger is younger doesn't always mean better. When you have Crosby, Malkin, and Latang, the idea is to get better quicker. Rob Rossi is a senior writer for The Athletic, covering the Pittsburgh Penguins. As always, Rob, thanks so much. Thank you. It's the Confluence on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. Summer blockbusters are in full swing, and some such as the newest Mission Impossible flick or the latest in the Fast and Furious series will be uh, 
a bit loud. And while you're settling into your seat to enjoy the latest hit, perhaps you might reflect on the movies that got us here. Silent Films. Pittsburgh Silent Film Society will host their first film festival this fall. Chad Hunter is the director of the Silent Film Society. Welcome to the program. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Pittsburgh Silent Film Society, founded in 2013. How we consume films has drastically changed from only going to the cinemas to at-home setups to ultimately being able to stream films. Why create an organization that looks back to the old Hollywood? My opinion is that silent film with live musical accompaniment is an art form in and of itself. I think it is a, if you have an experience, it's something that you should experience the melding of, of cinema and live music. Uh, you know, I have a background uh, as a film archivist and, and working in silent film preservation, got a passion for it. And um, you started to hold silent film screenings here in Pittsburgh back 2013 or so and started to get a following. I quickly saw that, you know, there's interest out there for this unique art form. In in some ways, it's event cinema. I mean, why go see something at a cinema that you or a theater that you can see, you know, on Turner Classic Movies or, you know, on a DVD at home? You can go to a a theater and see a live musical performance and something on the big screen and together they make for a really wonderful live event that you can share with other people around you. Is this also a way your uh, society to celebrate Pittsburgh's long history connected to silent films? Well, essentially the, the first silent movie theater was here in Pittsburgh of all places opened in, I think June of 1905. There was a small storefront, uh, I think it had about 100 seats and charged five cents and uh, showed short films that lasted about 15 minutes. And so that really got things going uh, cinema-wise. And then also Pittsburgh has a, a really rich history in being the home of many silent stars. There's Olive Thomas, uh, William Powell, Lois Weber. You mentioned Lois Weber, uh, one of Pittsburgh's silent film pioneers, a woman. Were silent films, whether it was production, casting, open to diversity, be it gender or race? I wouldn't necessarily say that the industry was open to it. I think that it was um, often it was these folks working behind the scenes, and then they would just decide that they were going to make their own path. Folks like um, Lois Weber, but also, you know, African-American cinema here in Pittsburgh as well. Um, Oscar Michaud. I mean, these were folks who decided that, you know, if they weren't going to be embraced by the industry, that they were going to make their own paths. I understand that many silent films and their scores uh, have been lost to time. Uh, any concerns about running out of films on your part? No. I mean, there was a study done by the Library of Congress about 20 years ago. The silent period was about 1890 to 1930. We know, I think there's about 2,500 surviving silent feature films from the U.S. from that period. So roughly 25% remain, 75% are considered lost. You know, every now and again, we'll hear of a, of a film that's been rediscovered. An example is uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc by Carl Dreyer. A print was found in a janitor's closet in Norway in 1981. Uh, it was considered lost before that. And so now we have that film because of that. So you know, we're actually showing uh, a, a new restoration uh, of a film uh, by the Library of Congress. Uh, it'll show at the Harris Theater. You know, we're really glad to be able to to 
premiere that new restoration. That's called April Fool, and it's a Jewish romantic comedy, and we'll have somebody here from the Library of Congress to introduce it and talk about that restoration. Oh, fun. Chad, in your festival, are you including the only silent film to win an Academy Award for Best Picture, Wings, and uh, and or maybe the 1907 original of the classic Ben-Hur in his famous chariot race? Well, I, I, maybe we can look at future years for those, but I can give you a quick rundown. Oh, our Hospitality, Buster Keaton, Hitchcock's The Lodger, an amazing silent film, Safety Last, sort of one of the quintessential silent films, um, some experimental 16 millimeter silent films, which uh, 16 millimeter celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. The final day of the festival, we are showing Charlie Chaplin's film, well, Woman of Paris, 100 years to the day, we are showing that. On 35 millimeter, Dan Kamen, uh, for those of you who know him, he's a Charlie Chaplin expert. Um, he is introducing the film. We're showing it on 35 millimeter, uh, and it's going to be a great way to round out the festival. What are you hoping to accomplish with the Silent Film Festival? I'd love to expose more people to that experience of seeing seeing silent film with live accompaniment. I mean, there's the perception amongst a lot of people, maybe in the back of their head, they saw the Keystone Cops on you know TV at some point, and they're sped up films, and they're kind of goofy with goofy music on it, and maybe haven't had the opportunity to to really experience a, a silent film with live music, and you know they're missing out. I think some of us are just blown away by just the production of films these days. Is there something that silent films has over today's films, would you say? Well, over today. Well, I think some of the tropes and some of the technology and, you know, sort of cinematic effects that are used today had their roots in the silent period wipes where you see something on the screen that, you know, that Martin Scorsese has used had their origins, you know, back in the silent period. You know, the uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, maybe the quintessential German expressionist film, its use of shadow has influenced every filmmaker almost since then, you know, include from the universal uh, uh, horror films on up to, to modern uh, filmmakers as well. So it's where it all started. Chad Hunter is the director of the Silent Film Society. Chad, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. And for today, that is the Confluence, where the news comes together on 90.5 WESA. Next time, an in-depth look at the closing of the homeless shelter on Smithfield downtown and how that's impacting homelessness in the city. Plus, how many Pennsylvanians could be affected by a boost in the minimum wage? Thanks to our team, Addison Deal, Lara Satsui, and Mary Lee Williams. I'm Kevin Gavin. Until next time, hope you have a good day of good news.